Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Small business. Do you have a small business? Do you want a small business? Or is that none of your business? No, that's a bad joke. No, that's so good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, whatever. Uh, yeah, we're doing a bonus episode today. I'm with Simcor from Girls That Invest and Sarah Kelsey from The One Up Project. Or is it One Up Project? Do I use the? Because I'm confused. Um, I use the when referring to what it is, but I'll remove the the. If I, you know, whatever. Okay, sweet. So we're doing a, a small business episode. Uh, you've heard Sarah on the podcast before. You've heard Sim on the podcast before. And before we get into it today, from adding some shine to your portfolio with gold, that's G-O-L-D, the ticker symbol, or bringing a spark with wire, W-I-R-E, Global X offers a wide range of commodity-focused ETFs. They're here to give Aussie investors cost-effective exposure to the most compelling opportunities in commodity markets, including green metals like copper and lithium, carbon allowances, and hydrogen. To learn more, and before you start investing, please read the applicable PDS and TMD from globalxetfs.com.au. Thank you to GlobalX, our show partner. My name's Glenn James. This is my millennial money. And that was the sloppiest intro we've ever done. <laughs> okay, first question. We asked the Facebook group for small business questions. Jade. Ah, and this is very interesting, this one. Business loan or personal finances for startups, especially if personal money would have been offsetting a mortgage. So, I'll go to Sim because you're a little bit further down the road and maybe you can set the scene with what your business is like right at today. I I think my answer to this is maybe slightly controversial or something that we I, I don't know if people would like this, but my answer is neither. My answer is can you try and run your business without taking on a loan? And I know that that sounds very hard to do, and I, it also depends on the kind of business that you have. But the way that I was able to make girls that in, invest work is I used my nine to five job kind of as my loan applicant, or if I could call it that. Like I would use my, I kind of used my nine to five as my first investor, and so I would try and save up as much as I could every single week from my job until I had enough money to, you know, let's say like have 10000 or 5000 I don't like taking on, especially in this current climate with interest rates being so high, mm. I don't know if it's the wisest thing to be taking either. And can you make your business run in maybe a more scrappier way and, and sort of test it out a little bit more? Mm. So you're currently been going for three years? Three years. Yeah. So, and you've got a team of how many? 
I forget sometimes. We yeah. have a lot of contractors sure. that work with. Uh, around five. Yep. Yep. Five people, good small business. Sarah, you're kind of just getting started to this, you know, small business world. Just tell us a little about your life and your side hustle stuff. Uh, yeah. So the One Up project for me is almost like a part-time side hustle and then I have more of like a stable income where I, I do freelancing, like I'm a freelance marketer, I yeah. suppose, um, and the One Up project from a financial point of view uh, sort of provides for half of my life in that sense. Yeah. So would you ever consider getting a personal loan, for example, like unsecured personal loan to invest in the side hustle or the business part of the of your life? I think for me personally, I've always had a problem with taking out debt in general. Yeah. Like even having my student loan, I hate the fact that I've got 20K sitting there that I need to pay back at some point. But it's interest-free. I know. I know. It's just like having to owe someone. Yeah. And that's like a psychological barrier that I need to get past. I don't necessarily think that's actually helping me move forward in any way. But so for me for personally, if I'm thinking about taking out a personal loan for a business, I would try my hardest to bootstrap, as they say, mm. or do it um, with as much of my dedicated kind of savings for that as possible before I would look into taking out debt to fund it. I just view it as like when people have money or when people receive, either, whether it's like funding or um, a personal loan or a business loan, you almost look at everything like a nail when you have a hammer in your hand. Like you suddenly go, oh, like I should probably pay for this and I can outsource this and I can pay for that as opposed to what's the best way I can do this? Can I work, like, do I have to get a paid software for this? Do I have to get monday.com? Can I just do everything on Excel while I get started? I think you just, in my opinion, are a better business owner when you have less to work with. But if you decide, no, I need to do, like, I need money, I need a loan, I don't know, I just don't think I'd choose the personal route. Yeah, so you know how they say, like, when you get a loan or, you know, everyone talks about investment property. So you buy the investment property with a loan, that property hopefully grows in value. So you've used the the loan for leverage into the property, right? To maximize the returns because you leverage returns. The problem with borrowing money, it can magnify your losses as well. Mm. So the other way. So I've got a really good example and I haven't shared it on the podcast for maybe 18 months or two years. When I started my financial planning business, you know, bootstrapped, no debt, like cash flowed everything. I then, there was this uh, like brochure thing and you pay to go into it and you get an ad in real estate agents. So if people come to the area, there's the brochure and, you know, there's, welcome to your house and here's a heap of local services if you move to the area. So they basically provide these brochures to real estate agents at no cost. It's got their logo on there, but inside there's ads of local supplies, plumbers, electricians, Glenn's Financial Planning, all that stuff. So anyway, it was like $1,500 or $1,000 to do this for six months for me. And that was a lot of money for me, like should have been 10 grand because I basically, it was a stretch regardless whether it was $1,000 or whatever. 
So I paid the $1,000 to that and I never got one phone call from it. So no return on investment. And just like 18 months later, I was looking through an old Dropbox and I was like, oh, there's that old ad I did like, you know, got a mortgage, you need to like look at some advice or whatever. My phone number's wrong. Oh, no. So I paid $1,000 for an ad with no phone number and I only did the $1,000 because that was like the minimum thing I could do. Now, if I had a personal loan, I could be like, all right, I've got 20 grand here, personal loan. I'm going to allocate, oh, I'll do five grand, make it bigger and do more. Mm. And the magnified losses could have been huge. And then the other thing is with small businesses, something like 75% fail within the first three to five years. So the numbers aren't in your favor. I don't care how good your widgets are or your idea and all that. The numbers are not in your favor. You've got a higher chance of failing. Also, everyone read The Dip by Seth Godin. We'll put a link in the show notes. That's going to really help you. But when you've got such a high chance of failing and the reason why a lot of businesses fail is because we'll pick on like Thermomix. Do you have Thermies in New Zealand or like Tupperware and all that? Oh, yeah. The, yeah. The reason people do that for 10 minutes and they don't because they start, they talk to all their friends and family and do the Thermomix parties over the first 18 months, two years, and they run out of people to kind of sell to in their networks. So that's a whole other lesson with building a business, but the numbers aren't in your favor. So it's so much best to cash flow it because you will use that money so much more wisely. And you might be listening in and going, oh, but that means I'll have to start off slower. Like it means I'm pushing out things by like 18 months or two years. I think doing things slowly and steadily in business will just set you up for a greater foundation than having $20,000 to play with today. And and like you said, maybe not like maybe running a little bit loose and making those mistakes because we'll all make mistakes. I remember when we started, we didn't have a budget for marketing. Our marketing budget was me jumping on YouTube and learning how to do Instagram for free, but then that made us one of the top performing organically grown Instagram brands in the money space. And it means that people in our, and it just means that now to this day, we still don't have a marketing budget because we don't need to, because we learned how to do it in a scrappy way and we still grow for free. Yeah, I hear a lot of entrepreneurs or business owners talking about this where they say that a slow and steady growth is always preferred over the fast rise to the top, which I think is interesting because, Sim, for you, you had quite a quick growth and a quick movement up. It looks like that. (laughs) Yeah. So for you, though, has that impacted girls that invest at all? Like, do you feel it could have been slower or do you think it was a good speed and you could manage? Well, I think like, let's, let's use like the Instagram, for example, like in our first year, we grew from zero to 10K and our second year, we grew from 10K followers to 150K Mm. and then 150K to now we're at 230K. So it looks fast, but I think people don't realize I did Instagram for eight years before that and I made the slow and steady mistakes and learnings. And so the second time round, this was like, you know, an example of me saying this isn't my first rodeo. I know it works. But when I first started, you know, the Indian Feminist, which was my first media company, I didn't have any funding and I learned from trial and error. Yeah. If I had been given money, I think 
if I'd been given money, I would have just, yeah, not learnt those slow lessons and made it to what it is now. I, I would also say like, so Jade is like basically said, I've got an offset account on the mortgage. Like if you look at philosophically, if, if you've got a mortgage debt and you go and spend $5 on a coffee, philosophically you've borrowed against the house because that $5 <laughs> could have paid down the mortgage, right? So as long as you've got a mortgage debt, everything you spend in your life, you're borrowing money for. So there's that and we can't overcook it. But what I'd probably do is, you know, she said, especially if the personal money would have been offsetting the mortgage, I would still rather you use your own personal money that you've saved because it's going to go further than just borrowing money, a 20 grand personal loan that you've got to pay interest on. Sure, the interest might be deductible, but yeah, if you haven't got the vibe from this little chat so far, it's so much better just to cash flow it and grow slow. There's a question here from Georgia. Pros and cons of being a sole trader versus company. I'm a wedding photographer as a sole trader, but not sure whether to move over to company. It's also just me in business and she occasionally uses contractors. Sim, are you incorporated in New Zealand? We are. I would love to answer this question. Please. I debated this for so long because I was in a very similar position to George. It was just myself and I had contractors working with me every now and again. And I kept myself, so I started Girls That Invest in March 2020. I kept myself as a sole trader until November 2021, so a decent amount of time. And my biggest mistake was not realizing that there was there was a time where our company kind of blew up. We made more profit than we'd ever expected. And then I had the world's largest um, sole income tax bill come through. <laughs> um, and I remember telling my accountant and they were like, what is wrong? Word to word, what is wrong with you? Like you should have become a company so much earlier my reasoning for not being a company was I didn't want to pay $200 to incorporate. Mm. Mm. And I didn't want to, you know, get involved with making all these decisions. And I just thought it was, I thought it was so much serious, so much more serious than it was. But the benefits, I would say, if you're unsure, if you're at that point where I was, where you're on the fence, the benefits of having a company is one, if and when, and you might not feel this way right now, but you might feel this way in 10 years' time, if and when you want to sell, if and when you go, you know what, I don't really want to do this, it is so much of an easier gifted package to give to someone when you're giving them a company that has company records and everything is kept separately and you're a different entity. There's also the benefit of, you know, if anything happens, it's against the company, it's not against yourself personally. And look, I think if you're dealing with contractors, I would move towards being a company. I think it just makes things cleaner and I just, I like it a lot more. Yeah, and it, it's a formal line in the sand and I was the same, like when I started my financial planning business, I started as a sole trader because I didn't want to spend the money to incorporate and in Australia. It probably cost 800 bucks to set up a company for whatever reason to get the constitution and all that paperwork underway and the ASIC fees. But I think, you know, the, the liability, and it could be slightly different in Australia, like a lot of stuff that I sign as a director of the company, there's a director guarantee anyway. So it doesn't obfuscate 100% of liability, but it's a good barrier. With a company as well, you've got to remember your ongoing costs will increase because 
you've got a completely separate entity that you'll have to have accounts for. You'll have to have bank accounts set up that are owned by the company. And there's direct alive, like there's actually directed duties as a company. So for example, if you don't update your records with ASIC, if you move house as a director, you could be in breach. So there's very serious things that you need to do as a company director. Uh, but as Sim said, it, you know, you might start as a sole trader, things are going good, set up a company, and then if it whatever the type of business is, there could be a portion if you've got someone who wants to buy in, you can sell them some shares. So, you know, there is that flexibility. On the tax side, you know, I would be governed and a lot of, and there's a couple of questions about this, just be governed by the advice from the professionals in your corner because there are some tax issues. So, for example, if you're building a, an asset in a company, there's no capital gains tax if you sold that asset and we can kind of get into that. But yeah, so for example, the brand My Millennial Money is not owned by Simo, Simo Interactive, my operating company, because if I want to sell the brand one day, My Millennial Money, company doesn't pay 30% tax and capital gains tax, it's owned by my trust and it's leased to the company. So anyway, long story short, the more deep you get into business, the more money that's turning over, you will have to take advice from your accountant unless you're a contractor and for example, wedding photography. You know, we just, we're in Sydney at the moment, we just went for a, a harbour cruise or ferry and we passed Fort Denison for those in Sydney. Maybe if you are going to be a contractor and shoot weddings there. They might say we only contract companies for some weird liability, which means they don't. You have to provide your own insurances. You might have to be a company from day one. So very nuanced, but don't just run into company. Get the business going. Prove that you think it's got legs. Then you can move, whether it's a trust, a unit trust, or a company. Um, so that's my two cents. Have you got a company for what you're doing, Sarah? Uh, yeah, well, one has been a company since the very start. And I think how I made that decision was I literally just went onto the IRD website, which is Inland Revenue Department in New Zealand, I think the AOT. ATO. ATO uh, in Australia. And I just went on their website, pros and cons of limited liability company and sole trader and made a decision based on that. Did you know New Zealand is considered one of the easiest places in the world to start a company? Really? No, I did not know that. Well, yeah, and that, very and that makes sense because you don't go to the ATO to start a company here. <laughs> you go to the uh, Australian Securities and Investment Commission. Okay. So yeah, they kind of govern that. But but you've just taken the judgment call. I'm just going to do this from day one. Yeah. And it's probably in Australia, it is probably different because it costs more to set up a company. Mm. There could be some higher risks for being a director and director responsibilities and the increased tax return. So it's like everything, personal finance, it is personal. Here's a very good question from Ellie. The legalities or slash, this probably sounds better, the must knows before starting a website, a podcast or a YouTube channel and whether it's best to do things under your name or create a brand and register that to work under instead. So why didn't you do SIM 
investmentclub.com. <laughs> oh, okay. I just realized all of us have brand names and not mm. our personal names on our brand. I think for me, the reason why I did Girls That Invest and not Simran Core That Invest or Sim That Invest, I think I wanted the brand to be bigger than us. And I think that I, the vision I had for what I was doing was not something I wanted tied up to myself. And being a face of a brand or having your name associated with anything has really great success in personalization and people get to know you and if they love you, they love your brand. But it also has the inverse effect where you are now held to this and it's very hard to move past or it's very hard to grow. If you think about who you're going to trust more, in my opinion, I thought someone might feel a little bit more trusting towards us if we are a brand name with this overarching umbrella of things, as opposed to I am just one person and come learn this topic with me. And so you'll th- you'll see examples like even Kayla Fitness. She is, I think everyone knows Kayla Fitness, but for those that don't know, she's was an influencer who got into the fitness space, grew her brand. She didn't call her app Kayla Fitness. She called it Sweat. Mm. And the beauty of that is when she sold Sweat with her co-founder, her ex-partner, they sold it, I think, to like iFit for hundreds of millions of dollars. Would have been a lot harder to do if it was called Kayla Fitness app. Mm. Mm. Yeah. You want to separate what you do just in case you decide that it's not something that you want to have your name on. And I just think there's nice to have a separation between who you are and a company that you run. I agree. I think that's also a very wise, responsible decision to make, like to separate it in terms of if you are wanting to sell it in the future. Like when I think about how I came up with the name for the One Up Project, it was because anytime someone would use the term or the phrase get the one up, it was always about getting the one up on someone else or mm. it was always had negative connotations. And so my thinking was always about what's the why and what's the purpose and what's the vision of this podcast. It's for people to get that one up on themselves and their own lives and that was how I came up with the name and I never ever considered the importance of that really at all. It was more just about what feels right but I think looking at it from a like making a business decision, that's a good way to look at it. I think it's also important to acknowledge that for some of us that have not so common names or quote unquote hard to pronounce names, you're actually, you have to consider the slight like racial undertones that you will experience as a business if you're called something, something Simran Core. Mm. Not pe- not everyone will know that. They Some people would look at that and go, how do you even pronounce that? What where, What culture is that? And now there's these extra biases associated with your brand. I wanted it to be completely free of that. Mm, mm. And there was actually a question. It's not on our list here, but someone was talking about trademarks and whether to do trademarks and all that. I trademarked, I think, a year into it because I'm like, I just don't need the expense up front. And like, I just thought I'll give it a go. If it starts to grow legs, I'll swing around and then do that. I don't know if you girls have a view on trademarking. The weird thing in Australia, right, I could say Glenn James Money Course, TM, have a little TM logo and it not be trademarked and it's not illegal to say you trademarked. Hmm. Yeah, it's wild. So I probably wouldn't rush into trademarking, particularly if you're just in a a service-based business or you're a 
I don't know, you're a marketing consultant and you don't want to go scale or if you're an air conditioner installer, I don't see the value of it. I disagree. Yeah. I've seen some cases where people have not trademarked a year and, and it's just bit in the, in the backside. Imagine doing like a year's worth of work mm. and then someone else comes and trademarks your name and comes up to you and says, hey, you have existed before me, but I've got your trademark. You have to change everything about your brand. Mm. How much is a trademark in Australia? Probably $600. That's still less than having to rebrand your entire business yeah. a year in. Yeah. So but I think it is a horses for courses thing. Mm. Um, like if you, you know... Steve's air conditioning, servicing Eastern Sydney or whatever. But if you want online presence scale, you might make a different call. Were you going to say something? I was going to say, so you've trademarked Girls That Invest? We have. Um, and funnily enough, in Australia, we actually, our trademark got declined because they said that the words were too vague, which is fair enough. Mm. But yeah, just as interesting, we also... For those that are interested in trademarking in other countries, it's also worth mentioning like if you think you're going to get bigger in other countries and you want to start having like an international trademark, WIPO is where you can go and put in a trademark application once and say, hey, I want to trademark in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the US and the UK and you just put one application and then they submit it to all those mm. countries. Um, also, you don't have to use a lawyer to trademark. I think that's a huge misconception. It does make it easier to get it right the first time, but if money is a huge barrier but you feel like it's important for you, you can watch a couple of YouTube videos and sort it I out. I did it myself on the IP Australia website. It's mm. not that hard. No. But I, I think just make a judgment call. Like, you know, if you are really going to be online and scale and all that, you might do that. I think I just didn't do it to start with because either I forgot, didn't have the money, didn't care. I don't know. but We didn't do it from the start either and yeah. I honestly wish we had. Yeah, right. Yeah. We've run into a few hurdles. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, scandalous. We'll be back right after this. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, we're back. Now, there's a question here. 
Lorato said, when does one know it's time to leave their daily job to focus on their side business? Is there a percentage of income one must work with to determine that? I know it's dependent on the type of business, potential income expenses, blah, blah, blah. But is there a general rule, Sarah? I was just going to say, I'd love to know the answer. (laughs) Someone tell me the answer. Well, Sarah, you left your job in a very like, like your story is really interesting where you worked such a like job that everyone, you know, thinks that they should do working in a big four. It was a very stable job and you still quit to do your own thing. When, what made you decide what was the turning point for you? Yeah, well, I guess that was nine months out of uni and it was sort of a set and forget career really, like a jump into accounting and that was going to be me for the rest of my life. And then I realised I hated accounting. And so that was a realisation that altered kind of the direction of my life completely. At that point, I had already started the podcast and I did leave to put three months full time into it. And then I ended up getting another job after that. To make that decision, I there were multiple factors and I didn't do it in a financially responsible way. Like I could not come on here and tell you that it got to a point where I was like, yeah, it makes sense now financially to leave the job. It didn't. Um, I just did it because for me, I could no longer work in the job that didn't align with the person I was. And so coming back to some of the things we'd spoken about earlier, like, or in a different episode, actually having, an emergency account, a set of a bit of money available to be able to invest into my life and to have the time and the freedom to work on something I cared about was what gave me the opportunity to do that um, to a point where I could, you know, spend all of my time on it and really give it a good crack and see where it went. You know, looking back now, um, I've heard this conversation come up lots of times with different people and I think that ultimately it gets to a point where you have to make it's it's like it, it always feels like a big leap no matter what even if you do have the income to supplement what you're already earning it's always going to feel like a big jump but i think you do get to a point where you have a little bit in the bank ready to go as well as something that you're already earning and then kind of take the step off the ledge but yeah for me it wasn't a, a smart financial decision it was like a personal decision that i needed to make for my own growth i think Hmm. I reckon it like it is so circumstantial. So when I left and started my first business as a financial advisor, I couldn't do financial advice on the side. So it actually wasn't possible Mm. to be licensed with this company and then have my own business on the side and have a separate license, like categorically not possible. So if that's the case, if it's categorically not possible for some of those structural things, you're going to need to build some type of war chest and it might take a year because you're going to need something to live off to get started. Mm. I thought for me my answer would look like having enough money in my business in cash that was the exact same number as my salary. And so back then that was $75,000. And I was like, okay, once I make $75,000 and that's in girls that invest, that just was the, I guess, marker or line where I felt I would be comfortable to quit my job. We made... $200,000 and I was still not comfortable to quit my job. Mm. And I realized like the number that I thought I would need was still not enough. And I thought I was going to be a lot more risky. And I realized I was much more risk adverse to quitting. I remember telling Glenn about it and being like, should I quit my job? Should I not? He was like, how long do you want to uh, treat people's glaucoma for? Like it was very... <laughs> 
slight slight level of bullying, perhaps. Um, I would tell my friends about it. I was like, should I quit or not? I wrote a pros and cons list, which I still have to this day on my phone. Mm. And it was actually so much more mental around quitting as opposed to a financial choice. So I agree with you. It, it didn't end up coming down to the number. So, um, you know, with this question of asking like, what percentage should you focus on or, you know, what kind of, how much money do you have? I think that's the misconception we all have that if I make a certain amount of money in my business, I'll be ready to quit. I think if you feel like it's the right time, then go for it. You never want to be forced into it. And if that looks like being there for it, another six months and reevaluating. I think that's okay. I reckon as well, when you're starting a business, you need to have a bit of hunger. You need to have a bit of drive because conversely, right, if you just, and I know a guy, right, his dad gave him like 200 grand, very wealthy family to start a business. A small loan of 200 grand. Maybe in a gift. Um, <laughs> so he had this business with all this stuff that was just given to him the business didn't last because he really didn't have that underlying drive. He was building the business on a false economy mm. and that's not good. And, you know, so what I would also say is you want to get to the point where you're seeing signs of life. So when I started the podcast, I was still having my financial advice business. Like I hired an extra suite in the complex and that was the studio and I'd be like, see a client face-to-face. Oh, I got someone in, we're recording a podcast. So I was kind of doing both. The podcast was the side hustle. And then it got to the point, it's like, this thing has signs of life. This could be going somewhere. And then I made the call like, I'm going to jump. But you want to make sure that when you do the jump, the other boat that you're going to land on is close enough so you don't fall in the water. Like it could be a stretch, like because you need that hustle. But Look for signs of life. If in doubt, ask people close in your life because the people around us often know us more than we know ourselves and then there's that layer of risk profile. Mm -hmm. So what would that look like? So the time is right. Also probably when you're that busy, you don't have any spare time after hours or it's starting to impede your nine to five. Like there's an email coming about my side hustle that I might work and oh, I feel guilty because I'm this or I'm spending my lunch break doing my side hustle. Like I reckon when you're asking the question, is it time? It might be time because you will know when it's not time. Do you reckon that's a fair statement? I completely agree. I remember when I left and my, I remember when I was asking my dad if I should quit and do Girls That Invest and he said, yes, you should quit and do Girls That Invest. That's when I realised I probably should have done this six months ago. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, if my father is saying, yeah, quit your job, your day job and do this podcast. Yeah, the people who advocate for your safety, Mm. you know, usually like a lot of the time, especially asking your family, should I make a risky decision? They'll tell you no because they don't want to see you get hurt or fail or whatever. Um, but yeah, definitely. I think if that if that's if you're at the point where people are telling you to do it, then yeah, you're probably more than ready to go ahead and go for it. One thing that also helped is it was more of a mental game for me. But I found that so I had a mortgage, which made me very scared to jump because I was like, I have this house, I don't want to lose my house. My mortgage was around five hundred dollars a week, and so I reached out to this company and I said, Hey, I'd love to do your social media content for you. And I based my rates of, 
I was like, well, I'll work 10 hours a week for you and I'll charge you $50 an hour for 10 hours a week. And in my head, I was like, that just is going to look like $500. And even though post-tax I would take home less, my idea was I just want to know that every single week I'm going to have enough cash flow to pay my mortgage. Mm. And that helped me make the jump. Mm. Mm. There's a question here and then you've got to go. Do you want to quickly answer this one, Sim? Matt said, hey, Glenn, would love to know your thoughts on growing a team. Who were your first few hires? Uh, knowing when the right time to bring on new hires and family and how much cash do you have at hand as an emergency fund kind of in the business? Gosh, who was your first hire, Sim? My first hire was my best friend of 20 years, Sonia. Whoop, whoop. What were they doing in the business? What was she doing? She joined in to be a podcast co-host and we then um, found more things that we enjoyed doing together that we we sort of grew into. But it was the best hire I ever made, will always be. And the second hire that we made, which I think is more of a better answer to this question, was a virtual assistant Mm. um, slash executive assistant. And we didn't make that hire until two years into the business I knew it was the right time to hire her because I remember being burnt out. I went to a, um, someone that I really respected in the business space in New Zealand and I said to her, I'm so burnt out. Like I've got all this thing on my mind and in my business and I don't know what to do. And in the most casual way, she looked at me and she was like, yeah, I, I used to be like that. Then I just hired people. And I was like, oh, thank you. (laughs) Like I'm going through an existential crisis. And she was like, yeah, it just sounds like you need to hire more people. And I was like, that's so simple. Why did I not think of that? Yeah, wow. Yeah, that's cool. And do you keep a cash buffer in the business? We do. It's not um, as hard and fast as like three months of payroll, but it's enough to sort of be around that mark. Mm. I think... I'm very risk adverse when it comes to people's salaries in my business and that's just the way our business runs because we get very large cash injections at random times of the year and it's not, you know, the same income in um, every month. Yeah. I like to have cash. I've actually got – because when you're in business, business bank accounts, some of the rates are really crap. Mm -hmm. Like ANZ's business bank account, they charge me $10 a month, the online saver – after you have $5,000 in there, it was like literally 0.5% interest. I'm are, you like, with, I'm, are you with ANZ as well? No, I just left them <laughs> because of that. And I, I opened a Macquarie CMA and it's just like the savings accelerator is like 5%. Like anyway, I like to have a decent cash buffer and not run on the line. Mm-hmm. I don't want to tell run my own business, but yeah. Have cash buffers in your in your business. It just makes you, I think, it just lets you make better decisions because you're not making decisions out of desperation for mm. your business and I think that's a good step. When I had my business, the first kind of help was getting a bookkeeper because as a business owner, it wasn't my strength mm. and I needed to make sure that the books were up to date mm. or whether it is getting that, technology solution that helps you manage your books and invoicing and all that stuff. Yeah. But I, like the first hire for me, so when I launched My Millennial Money, I was doing all the podcast recording. I was doing all the editing. I was doing all the scheduling. I was doing all the uploading. And as you are with your podcast, right? Yeah, exactly. I had someone to work in the area of the business that I didn't find it 
was a strength. So the first hire was probably more of a contractor doing socials and mm. all the stuff that looks good because I'm not good at that. Like that's literally not a strength of mine. But then the the next hire was Jess Canals, and I needed someone to kind of schedule podcasts, help liaise with guests and just take a little bit of that pressure. So I've just done the episode, edited and Jess would upload it. Mm. And then we got a contractor who was an editor. So she would manage the editor, the outsource editor. Then we just hired Nathan full-time to do the editing. It, it wasn't Glenn get three other podcast hosts and ramp up. Yeah. It was that back office support. Yeah, exactly. So like, so for example, if someone's starting a business as, I don't know, well, you know, you've done your accounting degree, an accountant, like you're an accountant, we're sitting in my accountant's office here in Sydney. If you're an accountant and you go out on your own, often the solution isn't just to hire another accountant as your first hire because you'll be doing stuff in your work that is at a lesser value than being able to charge your time at $400 an hour. So you'll be doing bookkeeping on the, and a lot of accounts probably like doing that anyway, bad example, or you'll be doing Facebook posts when you can just outsource that. Yeah. So I reckon as a rule of thumb, the first hire should be support roles and probably when either you actually can't do the task and for me it was bookkeeping and the social media stuff or if you're that busy, so I would see a financial planning client and then in that business see them at the end of the meeting, do all the paperwork myself, all applications to investment products, all like organizing everything, the first hire was support staff to help me do that back office stuff. Yeah. So I reckon, yeah, your first hire in the business is not going to be a revenue slash same position as you. Yeah, it does seem like that first hire for a lot of business owners is the more admin side of things, the task that you have never wanted to do but have always just done because you've been the only one in the business. Yeah, so then once you have that person taking on those tasks you don't want to do, you can still keep going with the high-value tasks um, that you maybe didn't have time to increase before. Yeah, and that's it. And I legitimately know someone who is in, I'll call it a white-collar industry, and that person kept hiring other white-collar people like him, rainmakers, you know, professionals, and they weren't doing the back office and the business failed mm. because they were spending too much on hiring front-facing, we'll call it tradespeople or people that are working on the craft. And because of that, there's this whole underlying thing in business, guys, and that is what is the customer or client experience? If that isn't good, I don't care how smart you are at being a dentist. I don't care how smart or how good you are at it being an accountant. I don't care how smart or good you are at installing air conditioners or having a marketing brand or a nail salon or hairdressing salon. It doesn't matter how good you are at your craft. If the client experience sucks, if the customer experience sucks, uh, you won't last because people won't come back. Mm. Oh, a really good hairdresser, but I had to wait. They're running an hour and a half over. Yeah. Not going back. Really good hairdresser. She was an arrogant jerk to me. Yeah. 
It doesn't matter if you're pulling in double the clients if you can't keep yep. them. And this professional, they wouldn't hire enough back office. And so the experience was failing because the professional was doing all the work, but because they were so overloaded, mm. it just, yeah. But there is that curve. Like at the start of my financial advice business, I was doing everything myself. At the start of the podcast business, I was doing everything myself. But then you've got to – actually, one thing I did learn, Sarah, I waited like almost three years before my first hire with my advice business. Okay. Intentionally. Well, I just think I wasn't – I didn't know I was scared to invest mm-hmm. that money. Yeah. But the next business, the podcasting business, I think that first outsource contractor hire, even just part-time, I actually think it was like hard, like 18 months. So I brought that forward. Mm. So that's what I, yeah, if I do another business or whatever and that's that risk profile and the risk muscle, Yeah, my, I, I know if I get someone else, it will pay for themselves. Yeah, that's the thing. I think when you're first getting someone as well, you have no idea what the, well, you're just liable to someone else's life and their lifestyle and, and that is a scary thought to have to put all of that risk not only on yourself to be able to afford that within the business but to be able to give someone a sustainable role. And it is a balancing act because when you have a business that's growing, to bring someone in, it's going to be a hectic time because you're going to have to stop doing quote-unquote work Mm -hmm. to maybe train them up, to show them the ropes, to let them fail a little bit. And... There's no right answer. All small business owners out there, you know what it's like. Like, yeah, it's a struggle. So let's have a look at another question. Oh, here's one from Chelsea. Would love to hear your thoughts or advice on how to start a business and how to know starting a business is for you versus being an employee. So what do you reckon about that second point, Sarah? Yeah, that's interesting. I think that freelancing gives you quite a good insight to that without taking on too much risk in a way because you're still technically working for yourself in the sense that you have the financial responsibilities of running your own books and having to get an accountant and running your own schedule, but you're still contracting to or sort of employed by a company in a way. So Mm. it's kind of a nice in-between and that's how I started, I think, is that I was contracting to someone using the skill set I wanted to develop over time, which was within marketing and understanding, can I actually operate my own schedule? Does that make sense? Do I enjoy that? I think is really important because so often in in our world now, I think there's a lot of chat and excitement around starting your own business and being an entrepreneur and working for yourself. But just because that is what is seen to be financial freedom or exciting or amazing doesn't mean that that's for you and it doesn't have to be something you enjoy doing. Yeah, and like I've got a friend, he works nine to five, not heaps career driven, running an own, his own business would be considered hell for him. Mm. So yeah. I reckon like he's starting a right business if you know it's for you versus being an employee. I think a lot of small business owners and entrepreneurs – do have that itch of I need to do my own thing. Yes, absolutely. Now, the question is, is it I do my own thing, set up an ABN, register a business name, go and get the work myself? Mm. Or as you said, set up the ABN and maybe 
contract or subcontract. Yeah. So it's a bit of half-half, putting the foot in the water. Yeah. Or do you, and a third option maybe mm. onto that might be, do you just want and need more autonomy in your day job? Yes. Yeah. Can you scratch that itch by, well, you know, chapter one of the career book, looking at your values. Mm, I value exactly. autonomy. Well, I get told to sit at this desk nine to five and not move my ass. Yeah. Well, you're going to be wondering, should I do my own thing? Yeah, absolutely. When really you might not even actually enjoy managing a team, a leadership side of things, mm. a sales, a growth side of things. You might just want to go somewhere, do your thing, leave and not have to think about it anymore. But you want to have autonomy over when you do that, your flexibility mm. of your time. And those are benefits that workplaces offer now and they are available to people. And sometimes that's enough to live the life that you want to live. So there's so many different parts of owning a business and that kind of freedom versus just the sort of freedom or the autonomy, sorry, you can have within your job as well. And I reckon like it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Absolutely. And this goes back to, and we did talk about this in the career book, like having your emergency fund in place, not having consumer debt, not running your personal finances on the line and saying, okay, well, I reckon I could ask my boss can I do four days a week Mm. and then try something on the Friday? And it's not going to be every situation can be like this, but it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Yeah, 100%. And then, Chelsea, if you want to start a business, what's a business? I need to write down a list of like occupation examples. Marketing agency. Yeah. You're trying to think of something fun? Well, just different like... Uh... Oh, my friends roast coffee. They've got a coffee roasting business. What if you if it's interesting to you to run your own coffee roaster and roast coffee, number one, hygiene factor, you need to be in that world. So if you're at your desk and it's just, oh, I think I like coffee, I want to be a roaster, go and get a job at a roaster and work there for two years. Like number one, like <laughs> know the world. Mm. But number two, if you are an employee coffee roaster and you like the idea of roasting, oh, I'd be cool to do my own thing and all that. Can you speak to as many owners of coffee roasters as possible and other small business owners? Just go, hey, can I buy, buy your coffee, shout your lunch for 10 minutes? I just want to ask you questions of how you find being a small business and how you transition from employee to small business owner. Yeah. I would also ask at the very start of all of this, why you want to own your own business at all? Like, do you think that's going to give you financial freedom? Is it the money side of things? Or do you have a real passion for the things you're doing? Do you have a personal lived experience that's contributing to why you want to be in business? Having a very clear understanding of why you're even starting a business at all is going to 100% indicate what that business is to become and what kind of person you want to be within that business. Yeah. So, look, great questions. And the fact that you're listening to this, you're engaged, you're getting ideas. What I did when I started my business, the first one, I did a a brain dump and I wrote down as many things as possible that I need to do to get the business happening. Mm. And this was off the back. I read a whole heap of mindset weird books. They're probably written in the 90s and they're old, but I'm like, yeah, I got into this salesy thing. Anyway, it was all this like cause and effect. And if you understand cause and effect... It's, you know, if I want something to happen here, I need to first do this point here in the chain reaction. Mm. So what I did, 
I wrote down brain dump as many things as possible. Register business name, register website, get an ABN, get business cards, get my logo, like all these different things. And then all I did is I went out and just ticking off one at a time. Because if I had that list complete, it, that cause would cause the effect of I've got a business. Mm. So I just went one thing at a time. If it was one thing a week, one thing a day and just slowly got into small business. Did you have a business plan or was that I did. your business? Yeah. yeah. How did you go about creating that? I got a template. Okay. It was an old template. If I can find the template, everyone, I'll put it in the show notes. If it's not there, I haven't found it. And it wasn't a huge business plan. In fact, my first year of business, the plan was, this is my financial planning business, like if I can generate $96,000 in the first year. And that was huge to me at the time. Mm. And it was just more about having a bit of a plan. It wasn't hugely corporate. It was just like, this is what I'm projecting the first year. This is what I think, how many clients I need. And it was only six pages long. It was just a bit of a thing. And, you know, fast forward 12 months, it was so weird, almost did exactly the revenue that I had planned for. Wow. When it gave me a stroke. Wow. I'm like, oh, I should have doubled that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, do you think if you, do you think that was a limit? I'm not sure because I was yeah, scared and I was exactly. like, oh, there's no way I can do that. And basically the way I did that was I did a, um, a bottom-up budget. So everyone, a bottom-up budget is writing down expenses and then – so the bottom is of a P&L's expenses. So I worked out all my expenses over the year and then I'm like, oh, wow, they all add up to 96 grand. And that was including a 36 grand salary for me. Like I just wanted to – I just needed enough to live yeah. off. Yeah. This was in 2010, everyone. That's why I was much smaller. So yeah, bottom up budget. These are all my year one expenses, including a salary of 36 grand. Crap, adds up to 96 grand. Or what you can do, you do the other way, top down budget. I want to earn 120 grand a year. So you do 120 grand. Then you spell out all your expenses. And then at the bottom, that's the profit. Right. I, I do like the Glenn James spending plan for personal stuff as bottom up because I believe everyone with a heartbeat and legs has fixed expenses in their life. Mm-hmm. All right. Phone bill, rent, mortgage, whatever. And then what you do, you basically go, I've got my bottom up budget or, and it says, all right, I need 90 grand a year. Let's add 10%-ish, call it 100 grand a year. And then you just backtrack it. If I split that up over 48 weeks or 46 weeks, that's what I did to be conservative because holiday seasons and that, all right, break it down. That's X amount a week. All right, how many clients do I need to get per week? And then you just kind of, that cause and effect, like back calculate it. Yeah, working backwards is always a key part of planning. Mm, Yeah. So it is important to get it out on paper. Yeah. Yeah, don't have it all in your head Mm. because you'll get confused and overwhelmed. Yeah, yeah. So that was really important. But yeah, you've just got to remember cause and effect. Should we answer one more question? Then we'll get out of here. Sure. Oh, this is a good one from Jason. Should you buy investment with the profit from the small business under the company entity or cash it out to the owner, pay the tax and then buy it as an individual? Ooh. 
What is this referring to? Well, okay. I'll, let's use an example. Okay. You've registered one up project. Yes. As a company. In, yep. a, in New Zealand, is it PTY LTD or just PT, limited or is it incorporated? What's uh, the actual? LLC. LC. LLC, limited liability. Liability company. company. Yeah, okay. So it's basically saying one up project, you've got 30 grand of profit this year. Do we open an investment account under the name of one up project and invest in shares within the operating entity? Oh. So what are the benefits to doing that? Well, yeah, there's there's far more detractors than benefits. Let me tell you. Okay. Yeah. Let's 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 talk about why you wouldn't. Okay. Because that will make it more apparent. Okay. Number one, with investing, the tax on the investment is taxed at the owner's tax rate. So if you bought CBA shares in a company in Australia, so if Simo Interactive, my company, bought. CBA shares at $10,000 worth, they increased to $20,000, held them over a year and then Simo Interactive sold those shares, there's no capital gains tax considerations for the company. So it's a straight 25% on the gain. Okay. If it was in my own name or a trust, the CJT can flow through to the individual. Mm. So that's number one. Number two... If, for example, one up project, you had your $10,000 share portfolio, it grew to 20 grand. One up project has that. You do something dumb in business and another company sues your company, they can go, that company has an asset. There's money in that company. Hmm. So that's another reason you want to have that away, any assets away from the operating entities, because the operating entity carries all the risk. That's a, that's a reason. If you ever wanted to sell the company, generally speaking, you would sell the goodwill and the name and the new buyer would set up a different company. So then you're just stuck with, I've got an investment company and it's owning shares. Like, So that's another thing. Or if you wanted someone to buy into the company, it's like, are you buying into my personal wealth that's tied up in the company? It's just messy. You just need to keep it as separate as possible. Yeah. That's all I'm thinking is why would you have it under the company? Like would it – is there some kind of advantage to doing that instead of, say, investing under your personal name, taking the gains from that and putting it back in the business if that's what you thought was going to be? Yeah, so the, the, the advantage that uh, the questioner might be thinking is if I personally accidentally – trip over someone and they sue me personally, I personally don't have the assets. It's okay. in the company. It's protected. Okay. But hmm. it works the other way Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, well. then it's both um, sides. Like, and as I said before, whether it was this episode or the last one, I forget, my operating company, Simo Interactive, that owns the podcasts, the My Millennial Money brand isn't owned by Simo Interactive. Mm. The podcast RSS feeds, which are the asset of My Millennial Money, is owned by my trust. Right. The operating company, the proprietary limited, literally just pays for employees and receives money from ads or whatever. Okay. And there's no actual asset there. Yeah. And then because what I can do as well, if I sold Simo Interactive – quote unquote, 
I could then, which doesn't really have a value, but the trust that I have, I could lease the My Millennial Money brand out to another entity. Mm. So if someone's like, oh, we want to take over My Millennial Money, they would probably set up their own company or just lease the brand off a different entity and I'll just shut down this operating company. Right. So you, as a rule of thumb, you just keep your personal wealth separate from your business operations. Okay. So to answer this question, it would be to not Absolutely not. through a com- your company or under your, your company. Your operating company. Right. Now, there could be some weird tax strategies or whatever where you've got the advice to set up a company and that company is your investment vehicle. I mean, probably very limited circumstances, but we're talking about your operating entity. Take your wealth home, pay tax on that, then invest it. Mm. And it, the question might be around, or oh, it might be better to pay tax the company tax rate and just invest it in there. Well, pay yourself a dividend out of the company, pay the tax rate, and then on your merry way. Mm. It just seems like it's more risk than what it's worth. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why, like, if you're a an email marketing company and you buy email lists and you build them up and you sell those assets, you really wouldn't want that asset in a proprietary limited or if you're building it up to sell an asset within the company, you'd really want it in a trust or a unit trust. So when you do sell that, the CGT can just flow through to you, not be just taxed at the company tax rate. Okay. I think we're getting way too complex and I'm very tired after doing it. That's right. That's why I'm going, you know, two podcasts back to back and I'm tired now, but it's complex. Take your money home, invest in your own name, invest in your own family trust. And the the more complex you go, right? So I've got a discretionary family trust, Mm -hmm. which owns the shares in the company. I don't own shares directly in the operating company. Yeah. A trust owns that. Glenn Mm -hmm. James doesn't own anything. He owns a car. Mm -hmm. All my other wealth is in a trust that is for the benefit of me. Protected. Yep. So look, lots of good questions. I hope that's been just encouraging for those who are into small business, just chewing the fat. And the good thing about these episodes, while you might not be thinking, oh, I didn't get anything out of that, the direct questions, you probably would have because it's probably got you thinking about other stuff to do in your business. So, hey, if you like this small business episode, I'm happy to do them more. Just let us know and I'll do one a quarter and it'll be a lot of fun. So, Sarah, thanks for joining us. And um, yeah, thanks everyone for writing in. Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys. Bye. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. 
This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.